first of all, good to see you. And, uh, you and yeah, <laughs> we saw each other yesterday. I like to do a little pre-call with my guests and we got to do that yesterday. Um, so I've got this, uh, that, that's why I've got this cover slide, right? Um, and, uh, and it says, you know, uh, our partnerships and investors like marriages, right? So that's kind of what I want to, it's a little bit of a fun, mm -hmm. a fun, uh, just a little bit of a fun opening for the, uh, for the, for the podcast, right? We're going to talk about a lot of things. We're going to talk about your backstory. We're going to talk about, um, the relationships between founders and partners and investors. So, um, I think that's just a, a fun way to think. And I think the answer to that is yes. Right. Cheryl, you'd agree. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I yeah. definitely talk to people about that. This is a significant relationship that you're going into. And for some people, it's, it's more relevant than a lot of other relationships they've had in their life because you are putting your money together with an entrepreneurial dream. In many cases, there's creating a lot of vulnerability. There's uh, reputations that are being shared now, which I think sometimes people forget that, you know, right. how they want to be viewed and seen in the world is now yeah. being merged with somebody else's brand and their personal reputation and integrity. Yeah. So all of those things add a lot of complexity. And, you know, there there is something called a prenup or business partnerships, and that's <laughs> shareholder agreements, operating agreements, partnership agreements. And they're unfortunately too often uh, neglected, um, yeah. largely because many companies are started by people that have a pre-existing relationship, yeah. friendship, uh, family relationship, and they just kind of, Either yeah. they're non-confrontational, so they don't address the things they need to address up front, or they're just naive and think nothing bad's ever going to happen. Right, so. and, and and that's and that's the thing, right? You go into a relationship, but that's one of the re that's one of the ways it's a little bit like a marriage or like dating a little bit too, right? Because you you just have nothing but positive feelings and high and expectations mm -hmm. for what's going to happen. You can't imagine things going uh, going you know right. off the rails, right? Until your second time around. Yeah, I then mean, after I, yeah already been yeah. burned. I, I talked to a, a potential new client last week and he was telling us about, you know, he's like, I know I sound really sensitive about these issues when we were going over the operating agreement because, but, you know, unlike named his partner, I, I went through a terrible business divorce. And, you know, so he, he definitely was asking all the right questions. And unfortunately yeah. he had to go through a lot of pain to learn about asking the right questions. Take some of the fun out of it though, doesn't it? Yeah, I agree. And, you know, what are you yeah. going to do, right? Experience, experience, experience. The other thing that's interesting, I think, about it is that um, the other factor is that you don't, just like uh, marriage in a lot of cases, dating and marriage, uh, you don't always know the person well enough yet, right? And that really apl mm -hmm. I mean, applies a lot of times in partnerships and investors and sometimes in marriages that, you know, you rush into things a little sooner. Knowing someone less than a year or, seem, or even a year it seems like a long time or even two years seems like a long time. Um, well, and it depends on how you've known them, right? So what's the context of knowing them? So if you're in yeah. a, a book club or you, you play golf on the weekends and it's all fun and you're, you're having a nice glass of wine and everybody's kind of in a, in a <laughs> low stress environment. Right. Although right. I don't know if golf is low stress. <laughs> Maybe Not. You can learn a lot about people golfing with them. However, you know, if, if the context that you met was actually maybe you were co-workers going through a complicated merger and acquisition or you, you know, went through something together where you were able to see the person's work ethic, their, their honesty mm -hmm. and integrity, their work style, um, that those things, even if it's a shorter duration of time, you're going to get more visibility into what it might be like to work with that person. Yeah, I think you're, they're absolutely 100,000% right. And I made this mistake myself. We all, we all have, I can, I'm pretty much sure of this, that 
um, when you go into business with a friend or a family member or sometimes take on an investor based off of a warm relationship um, that's based off of context and circumstances that have no correlation to the pressure of a business, right? And 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 it just changes everything. And and we're going to get into this later about you know the, obviously the damage that can be done, um, but more importantly, just the fact that people are the 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 people the person that you know in a social, familial, or or friendly way is is often not going to be the same person that you know in business, and it's going to be and it's going to shock yeah. the hell out of you when it when it yeah. happens. Yes. It's just true. And, and, and even the people who are the most compatible um, in almost any other setting can be not compatible. I actually, I was pulling out, I've given this talk called The Partner Track. I think it's a Partner Trap. I think I told you I was working on a book, worked on it forever. So good for you for getting your book published <laughs> out the door. I think I have some kind of mental block. People are going to judge right. me. I don't, I don't think I can publish it. Yeah. But one of the things I do is I have this continuum, right? And yeah. I, it's a personality test, if you will, for business partnerships. And I'll just give you a couple examples. Yeah, please, so please. You have, have people, and, and I can have you share this later, but so column A, column B, right? So are you more likely, and Alan, I'll quiz you on this, okay? Okay. Are you Hit more me. likely to say, let's make our best guess and go? Or not until we know. Oh yeah. I, I, oh my gosh. I, I I wanted to immediately say the first one for me. Like I'm very much an instinctual uh, person, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not. But I don't. But I don't make big decisions. That well, maybe. Wait a minute. You got me perplexed because I feel like I've been both of those people. But my inst- my might core be, per- depending on the decision. My core person definitely is to the first one, right? That's my core yeah. person is to. Uh, and that's what this is. Is more like everybody's on a continuum, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe you're not in the extreme realm of shooting from the hip. I yeah. like that house in the corner. Let's go put an offer today. I don't care. I don't. It might go away. I want to forget the due diligence. Let's roll. That's one extreme. And then you start to come into that. And the other person's like, oh, my God, we got to do our research. We got to have, you know, mm-hmm. the real estate advisor come and do a comps on this. And yeah, I don't know who hand wringing those two people. That's such an example. of If you're yeah. on the opposite extremes, you're yeah. going to be have a real hard time as partners. But if, if you're kind of closer and one person's more this way, and one per- you can be very compatible. So it's the, that yeah. range of compatibility versus conflict is yeah. something to pay attention to. And I would even say there's even a more brass text way. I think there's a great little exercise you can do. It's, it's this is going to sound a little off the cuff, but I think yeah. it's I think it would absolutely hold up. Go 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 put you and your future partner or investor into a, a just a semi-stressful situation in personal life. Go camping, by the way. Go camping or uh, you know or work you put the tent up. <laughs> right, right. Go right. camping or just something like that that could still be fun and recreational or but has to have a little bit of a deadline on it. It has to have a little bit of uh, immediacy to it. It's gotta have organizational things to it. Um, and, and, and I think that would be a great way to reveal like your work style, like one of my previous guests, uh, they, there's a mother daughter and they talked about their work, not their work ethic, their work style, their, yes. their, their, their values were aligned, their in- integrity, even their work ethic was good and strong, but their work styles were dramatically different. And, and I, li- I listened to it, um, yeah. Coco and Dash. Yes. And they actually were very transparent because the mother said, I'm kind of a perfectionist. And mm-hmm. I want excellence. Yes. And then her daughter's like, yeah, that's not really my work style. And I'm sure her daughter cares about doing things well, 
But, you know, that you can have a person who they will not get it done until they absolutely feel like it is perfect. And that yeah. can be really frustrating to somebody else who has more of a, a get shit done perspective and just <laughs> like, let's go. We got to get this out the door. Right. So that, that's actually a really good example where that can cause tension. And another one that I think is super important that's on the same test is, you know, are you more likely to say a penny saved is a penny earned or you have to spend money to make money? I'm a spend money to make money guy for sure. For sure. That's easy for me. Where the tension comes in that, right? Like, oh man. One of the partners is like, we, we need to spend money on marketing. Like, Oh no, no, we don't, we can just do our own SEO and we can just do our own social media posting. And you know, that, that can absolutely. Wow. This is so big. Financials. So this is so yeah. important. Yeah. And then I'll give you one more. One more. This yeah. One I see a ton. And I think I have a, I've written a chapter that's like this, and it's it's like the um, the idea person and the doer, because you usually have like the idea person and then the executor. Yeah. And that again can be very compatible. That can be effective to have those partnerships. But what can happen is, oh my god, I got a great new idea. I got a new vertical we need to go into. I got a new product line, and then doer's like, wait, I haven't even caught up to what we decided to do like two weeks ago. Like right. now you're. More yeah. on on the plate of the executor, and the executor is getting like enraged because the yeah. idea person is on this hamster wheel, and and they're not the one who's actually doing the work. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm so. definitely on the execution side of that. I I uh, I I'm, I'm I definitely like to partner with people that are idea people, but we drive each other crazy, right? Uh, yeah. um, by the way, somebody here, you know, Lisa Lisa Seta says she loves this quiz, Cheryl. So. Um, you know what this means? You have to at least write a blog. I'm not going to hold you to writing your book. No, I'd love to actually. I'll, I'll definitely. I mean, it's literally like it's literally yeah. like a little. You quiz. need this needs to and be I, a blog. This needs to be a blog yeah. post out of you, and I'm going to give you two weeks. So that's a plenty of time. Okay. <laughs> I'll have my okay. executor write it for me. <laughs> right, <laughs> <I'll go>. exactly. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. Okay. So I want to get in. So this is a new experiment for me. I'm trying to. Uh, this is the second time I've done it. It's gone well. I did it with uh, Ben. Uh, last week, and and that is just to dive into a topic like this, just to just to get it started sure. before we get into the backstory. So I love how that just went, just to just yeah. to get this thing really going and amped up. Um, I really, I briefly want to touch on our sponsor, and um, and let's see if I can make that work. Yeah, okay. So our sponsor, and 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 uh, Cheryl, you're familiar with this 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 group yeah. and this company. This is Executive Launch. So this is working a, with them. Yes, this is a consultancy group that helps. Uh, executives within companies, corporate executives that have you know middle, moved up to middle management or higher, and uh, have spent you know a good chunk of their career learning an industry and learning the problems of that industry and building a customer base, all the things you would need and want to have to be a startup founder to create the right product or solution for that space. You have everything except you don't have startup experience, which by the way is not trivial. There's a whole game related to how to truly create a startup it isn't it's no surprise that very few executives actually are able to be startup founders without with very little money right like so sure if you have you know unlimited money you can usually pull off success but 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 can you pull off a startup success on limited resources after having been an executive the good news is you have all of the tools and all of the experience and all of the connections and all of the industry knowledge but there's just a lot of um there's a lot of things you don't know that all the young the young kids know when it comes to startups, right? And we all, you know, spend all of our time 
you know, absorbing and digesting all of the blogs and all of the, the Y Combinator demo days and everything. And, and so this group here um, spends, spends a very intense multi-month program with that executive so they can plan their escape. So that's what uh, that's what executive launch is. Okay. Yeah, you know, and one thing I love about that too is um, because the hat you wear as an executive, I'm in uh, Mary Key's Key Women group uh, forums, yeah. and we have, you know, both startup type of women that own their own businesses, and then also women in the C-suite, you know, with right. larger companies. And it's so interesting to see the different perspectives because we come to the forum with a problem and then we address that problem collaboratively to, to give advice to each other. And it, it's a very different experience to be making. I'd say the biggest thing is the, the course of a decision. Making yeah. of a decision process is so, so different in a corporate environment right. than it is um, in an entrepreneurial environment. And I think some of that training actually is great for executives to to transition because they have the discipline of a process of making a decision That's and right. they're used to accountability, right. but they also are, they have to go from the Titanic to the speed. Right. Yeah. That's so, correct. The difference a lot of times is simply resources and pace, right? The, yep. the, the, the lack of dr dramatic lack of resources and the dramatic difference in pace. Yep. And so you got to bring, like you said, all of that great decision uh, thinking and all of that acumen and all of that rigor of corp. And then somehow, then all of a sudden, like put it in a low resource, high pace scenario. And, and then you can do those two things together. You're going to go to the moon. I think of things like I think of, um, you know, sale, Salesforce and PeopleSoft. Those were both companies that were started by ex Oracle. By the way, they both left Oracle. So I don't know. Most people know Ben off. Mm -hmm. He left Oracle. He was like a top sales VP person at Oracle, he went and created um, salesforce.com. And mm -hmm. uh, people, remember PeopleSoft? Remember I told PeopleSoft? you not to quiz me on all these tech okay, things. Okay, that's right. You said, don't quiz me on, you said don't quiz me on tech. You know okay. this name and this name and this technology and that now, technology. You know, now, Salesforce was a safe softball, I know, am I right? I okay. But uh, PeopleSoft <laughs> was, and I think they got acquired back by Oracle, but at one point, you know, they were the biggest HR, enterprise HR solution product out there, six figure HR package. But again, came out of Oracle. People, mm -hmm. okay, Zoom, uh, uh, Cheryl, have you heard of Zoom? Yes, that's what I thought we were doing. That's why I had delayed <laughs> I <know>. onboarding. <laughs> so, so the guy who founded Zoom came out of WebEx, which is now owned by Cisco, right? Yeah. But Cisco, WebEx, he left WebEx to start Zoom. So the, the, there's a lot of great examples of Absolutely. executives who left and formed billion-dollar companies. So that's what yeah. this is about. Okay, um, and then um, let's uh, let's get let's get back to it. So that was a great. I love that new opening. My new format. I'm experimenting, and this is this is. I'm learning. I'm learning. Right. Um, <laughs> I I mean really. Uh, so so Cheryl, let's let's get into your back. Okay, before we do that. I want folks to go ahead and start logging questions, right? So all you have to do is put a question in the chat box. And frankly, if you're watching Facebook Live, if you throw it in the comment section, I'll try to, I'm watching that too. I can, I can, I can cue that up as well. But if you're watching on ClickMeeting, you just throw that in the uh, chat box. And so while we go through Cheryl's backstory um, and her, her rise to uh, prominence, um, <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's, uh, let's, uh, let's queue up some questions and let's make them good. And then Cheryl, you promise to stay until there's no more questions. Oh, maybe <laughs> if I get a glass of wine brought in like toward that end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then I, I hope you've arranged your, your wine courier in the, in, in, up to this point. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, you, 
I think you need to, you're going to come back next time uh, and, and you're going to have all this thing down. You're going to be like, everything's going to be wired. You're going to have like servants bringing you drinks and cheese and crackers. Right. I, I know. I was a little, I was very busy up until the very last second. And I, I was like, oh my gosh, it's this. Right. I got to go, go wash my hair. <laughs> <You're ready laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I know. I love it. Okay. I'm not taking this live thing away. I love torturing my friends with this format. Okay. Uh, so you grew up in Illinois. Yes. And so you're a Midwestern girl and Peoria, right? Absolutely, yes. Peoria. Midwestern, I uh, lived in Peoria. I went to high school in Indiana. I used to summer yeah. in Wisconsin. Love the Midwest, love the lakes and the whole experience. So, other than the super cold winters. I don't miss those. And how many siblings? Who are, how many siblings? One brother. One, one brother. brother. He's two years older and he lives uh, here. Right. And mm -hmm. uh, one of the things I wanted to, I wrote down here is a question mark. I, wanted, I, mean, I forgot to ask you on the pre-call, but what, were there any sports or interests you had in uh, middle school or high school before you went to college? Anything? Yeah, that you I was a golfer. I grew up with a, a golf family. My, my dad is a phenomenal golfer. And so I played golf competitively, competitively growing up and, and throughout yeah. high school. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's what it was. Okay, I should have known that because you and I have actually golfed tennis, together. A little I love to ski. That's my other yeah. sport. Uh, snow skiing is a massive obsession. Our daughter's name is Aspen. If that gives you any idea, yeah. that says a lot. Do you got? Do you go every? Do you try to go every year? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, all right. So so here's the thing. You you ended up uh, you now you end up going to uh, George Washington University as an undergrad and uh, political communications. You had no intention of being a, uh, an attorney or a, law, a no, lawyer at that time. Nobody okay. in my family had been an attorney. I didn't really honestly have a lot of exposure to it. Mm -hmm. um, it's a common undergrad political science and communications for law school, but that wasn't really the, the plan that I had. Well, I, I personally, I have a similar story. My daughter, um, she, as you know, just got accepted to law school and for the yes. fall, but she also had no intention, still not sure that she wants to be a lawyer, but she loved history, but like you. So she went to school and, and she chose to study history for history's sake. And she got okay. two thirds <laughs> through that. Uh, she was like, what am I going to do? And they're like, you can go to law school. And she's like, you mean I could learn more stuff? And so, um, yeah, so I really sure. can definitely relate with that. I think that's a great, a great a great way to law to law school. I think you get some extra mm -hmm. interesting quality people in law school if they come that way. Um, so, but you know, before that though, you, you had this internship uh, in St. Petersburg, Florida, um, right? That uh, yeah, really I triggered down things. Here, and I can't honestly remember. I think it was, it might've been the summer right before my senior year of college, last year of college, but um, yeah, I volunteered. I always was interested in elderly issues and domestic violence. Those were like my, my two things. So I thought maybe I wanted to go to law school. I took a gap year actually between undergrad and law school. And I went and I worked at the St. Petersburg State Attorney's Office. And, you know, here I am, I don't know, 23 or whatever. <laughs> and they said, can you please talk to the, the victims and try to get them to be witnesses in, yeah. in their, you know, in their cases, which now I look back on it, given my age and complete lack of experience, I, I'm not sure that was really an appropriate position for me to be doing. But, um, but I really, it was a big turning point for me because I thought I wanted to be a psychiatrist or psychologist and, and mm -hmm. help people in that way. And I discovered that most of the questions that these abused women were asking were, how do I get a divorce? How am I going to afford to stay in my home? What are my rights custody wise? And so all of their questions seem to be lawyer oriented, you know, yeah. legal, you would need legal advice to do these things. And the psycho psychological piece of leaving an abuser is obviously a huge piece. There's no, there's, 
huge need there. Mm -hmm. But I was more drawn to, I can find a solution. I can find out what you need to do to go get a divorce or to solve your, your problem with staying in your home. I can get answers to you on this. And I liked the action ability of solving people's problems. So this like this was the trigger that inspired you for to go to law school and you already had the right degree for it and then you had this experience and you're like ding 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 I'm Well and my best friend went to Georgetown right before me and so you know she kind of led the path a little bit and then I thought well if I do well on the LSATs and I can go to a really good law school then maybe that's an indication that I this would be a good a good step for me so it it kind of all fell into place I never believed that there's any single trigger you yeah. know, I think there's like pieces and foundation that is laid throughout your life that then the trigger looks like a trigger, but it's just like that saying about luck, you know, yeah. luck comes after a lot of preparation. And so it's more of that point when you recognize the things that are in front of you. Mm-hmm. Right. And and so things just all kind of fell in place and, mm-hmm. and you ended up uh, back in DC, uh, stayed yeah. in DC for Georgetown, yeah. for Georgetown. And yeah. uh, okay, so fast forward, you you were you were sharing with me that you the last thing you thought you would do would go work for a big corporate law firm because that wasn't your mindset either. But you ended up at a big corporate law firm. <laughs> right? Well, I was t- I think yeah, I was telling you like Georgetown is one of the largest law yeah. schools in the country, and one of the professors on the first day is like, raise your hand if you think you're going to be a public servant and you're going to help people with your law degree. And of course, everybody in the class raises their hand but maybe a few and, you know, versus going to big corporate or what have you. And then he's like, the reverse will happen. You know, it will be an, an exact. You'll come reverse. to your, you'll come to your senses. <laughs> well, they're pretty liberal in law school. So you know, I'm not sure that he thought it was coming to your senses, but it was an interesting commentary. And in fairness, a large reason, and it's a big societal problem that people don't go into public interest is they can't pay their student loans. Right. So, you know, all things being equal, if, if you had the ability to make a living and a living wage serving the public interest in that in that manner, I think you would see a much different ratio. Yeah. And so you, you ultimately just you ended up at Carlton Fields in a, in a yeah. big law firm. Right. Yeah. And by the way, they do a, a ton of pro bono. You know, when I was there, to their credit, I worked on the Better Women Clemency Project. I actually had a grant from Georgetown for one of my summers to work with um, battered women who were seeking clemency from the governor and the cabinet. And I worked on that program. And then when I got to Carlton Fields, I wanted to continue to do that. And they were very supportive of that. And I actually argued in front of the governor and the cabinet for the release of a battered woman who had killed her abusive husband mm-hmm. and got her out. So it was pretty exciting. You did. Okay. So yeah. Yeah. Um, you got to go one and oh, and before you left, <laughs> and that, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I it, like was, it. it was really exciting and it was, uh, it was very but, rewarding. So, mm-hmm. so, but, but there was a problem, right? It, it, the, the, something that w- about it being at that big law firm wasn't, wasn't for you somewhere down deep. I, I, right. Yeah. And you know, a lot of it is, is that voice within you and you, I thought it for a while because I'm like, well, this is, you know, this is the job everybody covets. This is like a really prestigious law firm. It was Mm -hmm. very, you know, good money for somebody right out of school. And, you know, I was proud, proud to be there. Um, But I just had that sense that I'm not supposed to be here. Like this isn't the right place for me, sort of like a relationship. (laughs) I mean, people often, you know, have a boyfriend or they meet someone and like, why am I not in love with this person? They, yeah. they check all the boxes, but you can't put your finger on what that piece is that's missing. 
And I do think a lot of it was lack of client contact. And it was probably because the scope, the, the particular cases I was working on yeah. were of such a large scope antitrust type of cases that um, my contact with the actual client was extremely limited and I couldn't see my path forward to getting that level of client contact. And I think if I had had that, because I feel very much like I'm helping people and serving the public as a business attorney. And if I'd had yeah. more client contact as a business attorney um, earlier in a big firm, I might've had a different take on it. Right. So, so you, you know, you, you felt like you, uh, you needed to, to make a move and, uh, yes. and, but, you know, so I, I know the next thing up here, uh, is this nursing home abuse law center, right? <laughs> yeah. Which I think, is pretty cool. It's really amazing. like there you go. You jumped right out and decided to help the most vulnerable. We, you know, the vulnerable yeah. of our society. I had been um, in a nursing home ombudsman when I was in D.C., which is basically a volunteer mm -hmm. that helps to to do things to protect um, people who are residents of nursing homes. I always loved old people. Yeah. I would visit my grandparents in in the nursing home, and I just had an affinity for them. And so I thought, well. I, I think I just I zigged the opposite extreme of I want to do something that I feel like is helping people. And yeah. Well, this was entrepreneurial for you, right? Well, I mean, it wasn't my firm, um, yeah. but it was certainly, I would say it was a, it was an indicator of the level of risk that I was yeah. willing to take. Cause it was such a, it, uh, people were scratching their head. Like, what, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it was that it was probably, it was definitely showing that I could follow my own heart and my own path. And I wasn't going to worry about other people questioning that decision Yeah. because I needed to find my own, so, my own way. So this is where I get to uh, do it. Make I do a book. I get to do a book plug right here. Right. Start. <laughs> right okay. because this is the point in the story right well maybe one start but, but you but you did pull off a pretty big quit uh i did right? oh yeah people it, wondering why would you ever quit that, yeah yeah that right and go, and go to that right um and i yeah and i would say the point too on your quick to start and, and you allude to this several times in your book that first step may not be the next, yeah. the full step. I mean, yeah. just like life, you know? So if you don't take that first step, you can't get to the step that's after that. And then after that to eventually land where you're supposed to be. And so some yeah. people get lucky and when they make that first big move, that turns out to be it, you know, the yeah. thing that they were supposed to be doing. But sometimes it takes more of, of piecing that puzzle together and it's not a singular move. Right. And, and so, but you made the move and, uh, right. And then ultimately, uh, I, I, I'm sure you're really proud of the work that that you did there. And it and but then you made this change after that that was like a dramatic change. Uh, you know, my own firm. Let's go. You yeah. were just uh, you were really you were really uh, trying to find your your lane, right? Because you I was trying to find my lane, but I will say this: so that firm going to I think it was three other attorneys, you know, and then like six paralegals. I really got to see how a small firm was running. And so that gave me the courage to then say, okay, I can have my own small firm. If I hadn't done that, I wouldn't, I would have been a much more um, naive or ill-equipped to say, I'm going to open my own firm. I would have been more behind the eight ball trying yeah, to do right. that. You so could, you got to see it from her seat. In hindsight, I can see how the pieces lined up. Like I got a great legal foundation at Carlton Fields. I then went and saw how a small firm can operate just from an administrative functioning standpoint. Then I opened my own firm with a partner mm -hmm. and, and, and it kept building from there. And then I yeah. actually was in-house counsel for, 
for a real estate developer. And yeah. that's where that click of really for, further merging business and law is where I like this. I, I have to merge business and law because I love the business side of it too much to, to only be on the law side. And so yeah. my firm now is, is very much about 360 degree view of our clients business. We're the, we're the legal piece, but it's not only the legal pieces that we're dealing with. We want to be a support part of your management team. Yeah, it reminds me, it's, it's similar to some, the, my, my kind of uh, approach, the, my path to entrepreneurship. I had an early run in my late 20s that was a, a, a kind of a splash, but I had to provide for a family and like everybody else in their late 20s into the 30s. I was always wanting to a provide for my family, but also wanting to climb the ladder and make more money at all the normal things that yeah. anybody would be distracted by. Right. And try to prove yeah. myself. And and so uh, but like you, I worked for several technology companies and that's, I worked for small ones and big ones. And and mm -hmm. the whole way, I, I guess for me, I was taking mental notes about how to run a technology firm. As you know, I was at Tribridge yeah. for several. I was at Tribridge. My last real full time job was at Tribridge several several years. Um, and so, so when, by the time I was able to make another move and under entrepreneurial move on my own, I, uh, I had, I was able to draw upon all of those, right. sounds like yeah. similar to what you said. Yeah. And I think the younger, sorry, I keep messing with this because it's like an awkward player. Um, I think the younger people, there's no question they're, they're switching jobs much more rapidly, much shorter stints. And, you know, there's pros and cons to everything, but the interesting probably pro to that is it does enable them to build skills and to, to discover what is the right fit for them in a lot of different environments. It's almost yeah. like these apprenticeships, you know, yeah. what I would make it more akin to. And so the career of how it used to be where you would go and you would stay same career until you retired 30 years or whatever. Yeah. Those days are well past gone. We've now gone to this extreme where it's maybe two, three, four year stints um, and again, there's pros and cons, but I do think the benefit of these shorter stints is that you do yeah. get to expose yourself to a lot of different environments and people and styles of management. One of my big takeaways on that is just to put a fine point on it is just for folks out there, because one of the things we like to do is give advice to aspiring entrepreneurs and, yeah. you know, people that are in their late 20s and early 30s or 30s, late 30s, even early 40s, they're in jobs and careers and wonder when they can make their move and maybe they could be they could have a startup and and, and the way i would i love the story because it basically says pay attention to everything going on around you while you're being those are apprenticeships you said those are paid apprenticeships right so like yeah. pay attention and try to think about you know take an extra lens about the work environments that you're in with your clients and the companies and 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 start even um kind of visioning what, uh, how you would do it differently or, or the way you would do it. Right. Cause. Yep. And the other huge tip I would say is personal and professional branding. Mm. It's mm. such a different world now. Like you, you can attach yourself to a law firm in my case and their brand, or you can go work for Tribridge and that becomes part of your image as you work at Tribridge. It's a stamp mm -hmm. of approval, what have you. That's not your personal brand. That is yeah. not your professional brand. That is yeah. leveraging the branding and the reputation of a company, which makes yeah. you vulnerable. That's if right. you lose that attachment, what what is left? Right. You're left. But if you haven't put in the time and effort to develop your personal and professional brand, how many followers and, and connections do you have on LinkedIn that you can then tap 
if you go yeah. out and start your own business. Those jobs are an amazing time to build yeah. a personal and professional brand because they will make entrees for you. They will often sponsor you going to conventions or speaking at conferences or doing podcasts, you know, because mm-hmm. they want you to do that marketing for them. But in the meantime, you're also yep. developing your own reputation. I mean, and, with, and the only caveat I put to that is just, just without going too far. In other words, uh, <clears throat> do it, do it, do it with with class and, and professionalism and a little bit of discretionary meaning like you, you know, and I know you, I know you kind of would have included this, but like, you know, not, not trying to outshine your, uh, your, your employer or trying to not, you know, trying to look like you're in it for your, you know, so make, you know, doing it in such a way that you give, give your employer plenty of love and, and, oh, yeah. and respect and profile, but you're doing your own thing. And at no point does the employer ever feel like that you care more about your own personal brand more than the employer. It's an interesting, even though in your, in reality you do, but you can never make it look that way. Right. Well, you know, and they're not necessarily incompatible. I mean, right. people hire people that they want to work with, that they know that mm-hmm. they like, we all know this. So, um, now there are some employers that will be threatened by this. There's no question. I've I've had um, contemporaries that own their own law firms who are like, aren't you wor- aren't you worried that your associates they're going to leave if you are helping them to profile themselves and do all these things? And it you know yes, I suppose that's a risk. But I also want rock stars. I want people who yeah. people do want to call. I don't want to be the only um, rainmaker. I want. So if you have an employer, particularly if you're in a professional industry, if they don't want you to start building your own book and and, and having your own reputation, that's that's a warning sign. That's an indicator to me that they want you to be the grunt worker in the back so that you can't leave. And that makes you vulnerable. Yeah. So I think, yeah, balancing that, I've got a young man that I work with now. I won't name his name. He's, he's very impressed with this young man. He, he, he actually works for a local university college, but he has his own podcast. He's, he does like a re- recruit, re- I want to say recruiting related to that. I can't remember exactly, mm-hmm. but he has his own podcast and blog yeah. around the topic. So he has his own industry blog podcast lane that it, mm-hmm. by the way, complements his, uh, his expertise yeah. and his job. And he, and so it looks, it, and so the employer, and he does it in a really classy way. And I think you can do that. I think you can do it well. By the way, quick time out. Chuck Papa Giorgio has something to say. Hi, Chuck Papa Giorgio. <laughs> so Chuck Papa Giorgio starts by saying everything is better with wine. Uh, uh, so something about earlier, we were talking about wine. But he said it's interesting how our younger entrepreneurs don't always understand the impact their digital presence contributes to their brand, especially considering that your digital exhaust fumes can trail your personal brand forever. Um, yeah. yeah, that's just a different topic, right? That is okay. What we're proposing is to put a put a, a very professional, well thought out, professional branding. Typically, you know, preferably your industry, something that's complementary to your employer in a certain way, but also yeah. complementary to you. If you can split, just just do that right. Um, he's probably, I think, more referring to uh, that people who go out and get, you know, who are not, you know, they're kind of half cocked with the things they say. They, uh, I mean, yeah, you can hurt yourself. There's no flamb- doubt. Yeah, too opinion. I mean, you could, we want you to be opinionated, but you you got to be a little bit careful because you do you still get a paycheck from that employer, and you still need to make sure the things that you're saying and doing 
you know, are somewhat positive reflected Most towards of them. them have, um, you know, social media policies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they don't, you should read other people's social media policies to get an idea of what is appropriate. But, you know, I'm talking also about smaller things. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you see that your company is sponsoring an event, mm-hmm. you should offer to go to that event and represent the company because guess what? Free, free dinner and drinks, free opportunity to mingle and mix, get people's business cards, make those connections, bring them back to your employer too. Yeah. You know, but by the way, you've also made that relationship. So it's just, I see too many people sideline and they're either not comfortable in social settings or networking, if you will. But there's a lot of different ways to network. I've got people who write great handwritten notes, you know, and that's their signature. And that's, that doesn't mean you have to go and physically network with people. If you write, fabulous written notes. I mean, Dean Akers is amazing at writing personal notes and sending little books. That's his signature and he's outgoing anyway, but you know, you kind of know, Oh, it's a little, it's a little thing, a little envelope. It's probably from Dean, a newest little cute book with a note. It's fantastic. And, 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 you know, we could talk all night about just the importance of building up your professional self, your professional brand and how it's just going to pay dividends. Not only you can, you can serve your employer, but in serve your, serve your, your career, your future at the same time. Right. I love it. Um, let's get back to the story a little bit, by the way, uh, Chuck Pop Georgia says he loves both of us. So I threw, I threw some heart, uh, some, some floating heart emojis at him on this, uh, on this <laughs> Facebook live. <laughs> those are back. Those are for you, Chuck, those hearts that are, that are floating uh, forward. Um, okay. So let's skip, let's skip to, um, let's skip a little bit. If we could Cheryl, let's skip ahead. I know we had, you had some other interesting things, but I'd like to get right to you forming, um, the Hunter law, um, uh, business law yeah. group, right? And yeah. I want to, I want to feel. If you don't mind, th- this is an entrepreneurial podcast, right? So, what mm-hmm. I don't actually think of you as I haven't struggled with you because one minute, one part of my brain thinks of you as an attorney, but the other part of me really legitimately thinks of you as an entrepreneur, honestly. And I don't mean yeah. that just as uh, fanfare. And and it's ironic that you serve entrepreneurs. That's what you do, and if, mm-hmm. that's not surprising. But I, I've always I want to hear about the, you know, the slice of time that went into you forming your own firm and, and some of the, the challenges and the mindset in, that you had at that time? Well, yeah, I, I kind of explained, I'd gone in-house and I was actually, when I was in-house counsel, I was also um, hired to launch a brand new division, which was this mm-hmm. equity vacation club. And it was very fun, it was very fast paced. And so I was like, okay, I, th- that was feeding that side of me. I think you used it, scratching that itch, you know, of creation, <laughs> creating something. I love that early startup growth stage. Like that process is exciting to me. And I'm also super curious about all sorts of different things. So when I left that, because, you know, the real estate market went, as you know, in a bad way. <laughs> By the end yeah. of 2009, it was terrible. So I then did an online education company. I won't go into all the things I did, but the bottom line is I was searching for a business, you know, like, and then I was like, you know, I'm really actually a good lawyer. Like I should, how can I still practice law, build a business as a lawyer Mm -hmm. and then still scratch this, this itch that I have, which is the the constant, you know, Ooh, that's interesting. Ooh, that's exciting. I want to work on this project. So how do I get paid to do that? So working with all these creative, interesting people who are doing fascinating things and being able to be on part of their journey in like this fractional, you know, 
lawyer journey with them is is feeding all of that while still enabling me to to actually utilize my law degree and to have a business that's you know but I want to dig in but I want to dig I want to dig in a little deeper right I want to dig in a little deeper I want to hear about and I didn't pre-call I didn't pre-call test you on this <laughs> so, okay. that's all right. hear, like like how financially secure were you how confident were you how scared were you it, that stuff, yeah. right? Yes. Um, well, that's a really good question. I will tell you that I've always had a little bit of an underlying security financially. You know, I've been fortunate with a family that's been supportive. And, and so I never thought I was going to be homeless, right? So you have the extremes of- I hope not. I you, uh, yeah, that I can't would... pay my rent. I can't, you know, so I had- yeah, you would, and, Most attorney, yeah. that, would, that would really not match a, a kind of attorney that one would want to have. So I think that- But I'm respectful of the fact that some people who do- throw themselves into the, yeah. the world of being an entrepreneur, they yeah. don't have a safety net. I mean, and there are people like that and they're, they're in a completely different position than if you have some safety net and some savings that you have something to fall back on. I had a professional degree to fall back on. I get you know? one quick interjection on this. You, you yeah. might've, I know you're about to say you had a little bit of money saved and you had a little bit of cushion, but I'm going to tell you that you didn't have 24 months of runway. Mm-mm. Okay, so I want yeah. to put it all in context. I don't even know yeah. that, but I'm pretty sure that's probably true. So that's Definitely when you're building sure. a law firm, you you getting that first so getting that first client it takes time and building up a book of business and a client base takes yeah. months and months and months. So whether you had three months or six months or eight months or twelve, yeah. 12, 12 months may not be enough time to start a law firm. See, but I will tell you, and this is, goes back to that building your personal and professional brand. Mm-hmm. I, I was very conscious to never burn bridges. I was very conscious about keeping relationships with people that I thought were interesting and capable and and fueling that, being active in the community, being on boards. All of that creates this fertile soil to launch a business. And if you don't put, there's a lot of time and effort that goes into the the pre-launch, you know, and, yep. and, and people often are investing in you. So in, investing, meaning coming to you to be their lawyer is an investment in you. They're trusting yep. you. They're believing that you can do these things. So, you know, I, I believe that, that that's why I tell younger people, like you've got to, to invest in your community, in your relationships, so that if you want to go out and do something interesting, whether that's running for office or, you know, launching a new, opening a new restaurant, whatever it is, if you have strong, solid, supportive relationships, you're going to have much better. So it actually, we got clients really fast. I mean, I had clients from when I had my firm before from 2000 to 2004. Oh, you're reopening. And they came back, which was really cool. uh, Two questions on that. So one, um, how much runway did you actually have if you were if you had struggled if it had been more of a struggle than expected how much runway did you feel like you had part one and part two um how many months did it take to quote unquote break even yeah well i well i did go conservative i I can't really remember how much runway i had because my husband was working at the time too so you know i didn't separate it out that way um, when you work, you know, as a lawyer, there's not a huge amount of capital investment that has to happen to, to just start working. So my first little office was this tiny, I'm, 
I got the smallest little box of an office and Soho executive suites above the Starbucks. Love my Starbucks. And I, I wish it. I could have seen you there. That would have been, that would have been it so was proud. A t- it had no, it had a, it had a glass door that looked out to somebody else's office that they had a window. So I could like <laughs> see, see the light come in, but, and then I hired um, my first employee, Caitlin, uh. you've met. Um, and she had this tiny little setup in the corner. And then I had this, student from from ut jake can't remember his last name he was adorable and he literally would sometimes sit on the box that was like the box of paper in the corner so we kept it really did everybody have to coordinate uh, when they had to move their chairs to move around in there did to coordinate oh yeah no it was it was it was back on it but it was lean you know it was like this is all we need it's perfect Oh, boop, 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 boop. Yeah, there I you're back. Circles. You're back, Cheryl. You're back. Okay, good. Okay. We recovered. You for a second yeah. we lost so you. It was a beautifully but- appointed. Yeah, it was a beautifully appointed office, so it had very nice space and nice conference room, so it looked professional. But we had the smallest little office in the, <laughs> the place. And then, and then, but then, okay. So, just if I were drawing, a, if I were to draw a chart of your client, your revenues, like, did it, did it kind of like just, just steadily climb, or did it, uh, did it kind of have a spike and then fall off, or did it, you know, what was no, that? It was look? a steady. It was a ste- definitely a steady climb, and you know, we got on the Inc. Five Thousand list, um, and it was, yeah, it was like just me when I first started, like mid two thousand thirteen you know, it was pretty modest. And then it like doubled the next year. I mean, we had double over double growth. I mean, very right. consistent growth. Sorry for all these, these questions, but I'm, I'm uh, yeah. entrepreneurship, uh, you know, you, th- these are entrepreneurship questions and that's what you were doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and probably, I don't know if enough people have just, I could tell not enough people have like probed into your story enough. So I, I'm really curious. I feel like I'm getting a scoop on the, uh, on the startup here of, uh, of Hunter yeah, business no, law. You know, and, and money, I, I'm not a person who's totally motivated by money. Like I've, it's more, I'm more of a passion person. Like I like making money though. And money is in, in large part, the barometer of whether we're, we're moving forward in the direction yeah. of having success. I mean, that's, yeah. so it certainly it's is, it, it's, it is, you know, um, a measure of success in, in the type of economy that we have. Um, there's a lot of other important elements of being a successful person, but um, so it has been fun to see the revenues go up. And I always also tell people, though, my clients, and I try to remind myself, profitability is just as important. Now, maybe not in a tech startup that's intentionally avoiding profit because they're reinvesting in their grow, grow, grow to get their their multiples up, but in a professional services industry, you've got to keep your eye on your numbers. You have to understand your profits. Is it worth spending this additional money for this fancier office or for this marketing campaign? Are you going to actually get a return on that and then get a good profit margin for your hard work? Yeah. So, you know, that's important yeah. as well. So you, it sounds like you, you kind of had a bit of a, I hate to say it, but a little bit of a storybook startup, meaning, you know, you, you got the baby, the tiny office and you got the first help and then you got your first clients and then you just month by month, you just got better and yeah. better and better, right? I mean, there's a lot of it too. Keep in mind, I opened in 2013 and I opened with a, a focus on early stage entrepreneurial startup. So I found a niche that was very underserved. Nobody, a lot of people were doing this work. There's, there's business attorneys that were obviously helping people, mm-hmm. but they weren't 
directly appealing and, and creating their firm for that marketplace. Right. So, so I figured out how to differentiate myself in the marketplace. Yeah. And then also people were now out of the terrible recession to the point where they were ready to start doing things in a significant way again. So it was easier to get people to, I think, spend money on legal, start businesses, do an M&A, raise capital. And then we had some fantastic luck. Um, but I, I mean, I worked hard to, to keep yeah. these relationships. But we had um, obviously getting to know the guys at Florida Funders and becoming the general counsel for Florida Funders. And we've been their counsel for about five years now. That opened up a whole window of of meeting people and opportunities to work with different private investors, different startups, go to events with wearing a different hat, you know, that we're representing the investor. Um, that was a big, I call them my catalyst clients. And everyone needs catalyst clients. We also have a very wealthy family client that had multiple businesses um, that, that have really gave us a lot of um, money, you know, for services that we rendered, particularly early in the days of the firm. So having two or three of those catalyst clients, and then really showing them the love and, and now our clients have grown up with us. So yeah. for example, Venue Ties, when we first started working with Venue Ties, which is a technology company that, that monetizes venues, they had two people. They're now I don't know, up to I think 80, 80 employees. Wow. And so wow. with with the growth of our clients from startup to, to where they've gone, um, that we've been fortunate to, to stay as their counsel and we've grown up with them. Right. So I think that's, I mean, there's a lot of, for, for people out there watching, like, especially if you're going to build a, prof a professional services company, there's plenty of that. I mean, my, my father built a professional services company that was his entrepreneurial journey and became very, very wealthy doing that. And, and I often mm -hmm. tell my students at, at, at USF at the class, you know, a lot of the people think that, um, that, you know, millions are made through, you know, fancy startup venture backed companies. And, but frankly, all the millionaires I know run like services companies local. I always tell the classroom, I say, all, I say, uh, the, all the wealth is created generally through tr just traditional businesses in your city. Uh, I don't care. I know a guy that owns a plumbing company with like seven trucks and he's a millionaire. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Or, or, you know, uh, if you run an, an engineering firm or, you know, if There's you run nothing an wrong with, with normal businesses, like right. you can have awesome, a plumbing company an AC company, you know, serving engineering. Right. I mean, these are serious businesses. And in fact, we recently sold a business for a, a gentleman who bought, had, absolutely no experience in construction or roofing built an incredible company as a roofing construction company Yeah, just because he's, he's a very smart businessman. And right. so he's like, okay, I'm just, I'm going to learn this industry. This is going to be my business. And he, he surrounded himself with people who had those skills. He yeah. was a great leader. And then he sold his company for a bunch of money. So absolutely. Now that's the, the thing I, and we talk in the class, we talk about there's, 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 you know, there's two, really two types of entrepreneurs that way, you know, you've got the high growth, uh, scalable, high growth, go for the fences type of a deal. Yeah. And then you, you have a traditional business that cares about, uh, cash flow and, and profits. <laughs> it's like, yeah. what it's yeah. like a lot. I talk to some entrepreneurs and business owners and they, they, they think it's, they just can't even get their head around the nonprofit, uh, the, 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 the startups that aren't focused on profit and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and, 
you know, revenues. So um, it's higher risk. I mean, I do yeah. think it's higher risk because you aren't, if your technology that you're building and, and trying to get people to adopt mm -hmm. doesn't actually take off and isn't the winner, isn't the horse that won the race, yeah. um, you don't usually have any value. Like yeah. there's no underlying value once it's been overtaken yeah. versus when you're, when you're creating these other types of businesses, there's usually something that's sellable Correct. at the end of the day. Correct. And it's so big. And so with that, uh, we got a question here from Lisa. She says, how did you, uh, how did you find clients in your niche market? So that's a great one. I always wondered about that. You know, you're, you're the entrepreneur's law firm. You focus on entrepreneurs, uh, you know, early stage uh, companies. And my first thing that comes to my mind is those guys are broke. <laughs> I know people have said like, well, how are you going to make money doing that? If I actually, I should sit down at some point and look at the actual yeah. sort of monetary value of the companies that we work for. We have a much broader mix. Yeah. You know, we have a lot of established mm -hmm. clients, companies that are much larger in terms of revenue and overall value. I think it's more, it's just, it's also a mindset. I tell people, people somehow equate entrepreneurship with startup. Yeah. No. Mm -hmm. Entrepreneurship is an entire approach and a mindset for most people. And so we're attracting people who think of themselves as entrepreneurs. Yeah. They have an, a mindset of moving fast, wanting to stay cutting edge, wanting to be creative. They don't like too much legalese. That's for sure. A few people do, but right. they're even more that way. Like, do not hold me back. I want to get this deal done. Let's go. So a lot of our um, firm is in, and I, you know, my uh, mission, vision, values is very much responsiveness, right? Pragma being pragmatic. You got to balance like business needs with legal needs in order to appeal to the type of clientele that we work with. So, you know, we're not deal killers. We're going to get your contract out the door and move it and move things on quickly. And so I think it's I, I think it's the attractiveness of the and everything around it. We have a very easy to get to office. I I'm not downtown. Downtown's lovely, but I, people I don't I'm impatient. Like I don't want to spend 20 minutes in a garage to get to someone's yeah. office. So ours is drive up, park in, walk into the building. You're 20 steps from our door because we have clients to come in in t-shirts and jeans and shorts, and they just want to come in get their stuff done. They don't want to feel like, oh my God, I got to get all dressed to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> go downtown and, you know, so we've modeled the whole thing around that. Well, let's get back to the controversial topics. <laughs> let's get back to the controversial though, Because I don't know if I really answered a question. No, you as did. Far as marketing ahead. yourself though. No, because she was like, how did oh, you yes. yeah. get to your niche market? And I think it's a really important question. Um, I think that coming up with uh, certain signature talks that you give. So I gave talks on the partner trap, right? So I, I found topics that were of interest to the type of people I wanted to attract and serve and gave a lot of free content, free talks. I used to host and I want to get back to it. The entrepreneurs afternoon teas. So these were like afternoon gatherings of eight to 10 people at the commerce club. So I put believe me, you, it takes a lot of hard work and long hours to have a successful business. I mean, I'm usually up till midnight, one o'clock. I'm not a good balance. I'm very driven. And it, that's what it takes. I mean, you can't yeah. just like sit around and have a 40 hour week and expect to at least well, to get to a certain point. At some point you can 
Hopefully yeah, I, I would that imagine well. there's been some plateaus for you. Like, uh, you know, you, you're, you're, you know, in the beginning, you have to kill yourself to build up that client base. And then you get to a, a certain point where you're cruising along and then you get a little panic moment. Like we got to find more clients and then you push out more campaign efforts. And then, yeah, like a although I really try to keep it steady because mm -hmm. I think it's a mistake to drop off just because yeah. you're busy, because to me, marketing and, and, and having people come to you is, is a, there's no one thing that does it. It's like you've got to keep a continuous pulse. And um, and I think also giving to people, being generous with connecting them to other people and your time and, and going to talk to students and, you know, helping other people voluntarily, you know, is all part of it. You know what? That's going to be a great segue. This whole idea of being consistent uh, with the pulse, right? This is going to be a great, great segue into one of our 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 pro provocative topics, which is, um, and it's something you speak about a lot, which is around when a company is struggling, but let's, a company has an investor or investors, right? right. And, mm -hmm. and, and that's a big deal in itself. They've given you money, right? right? And then you, you go forward, your company goes forward. And of course you're going to have struggles and you're going to maybe miss some milestones and it's going to be challenging. And you know, if, if you're lucky, you don't miss any milestones and everything goes great. But when you're, when you're building venture back companies, it's really hard and, and there's going to be, there's going to be ups and downs and challenges. And uh, especially when you're in uh, difficult times, whether it be a recession or maybe just your company is struggling or a certain degree. COVID-19. <laughs> yeah. Right like now. this thing, right? Yeah. So you've often said to me, like the first thing that you've said to me before is like the first rule of thumb is, is what with your investors in, in times of challenge and difficulty. Transparency and communication. I mean, you have to be open and honest and, you know, it's amazing how much leeway people will give you if you actually are honest and transparent and you communicate with them. The worst thing you can do is like, well, maybe next month will be better. So I'm not going to give an investor a report right now. Because you know what? Now they now they're wondering what what are they are they even doing anything? Are they even trying? Like you might be up till two in the morning, crying and sweating it out and running spreadsheets. But if you don't tell them that, and you don't show them that you're trying to work your way through this, yeah, then they don't know. They don't know. They think you don't care or that you're not doing the right things. And it's also such a crime because typically investors are really experienced people who made a lot of money. <laughs> they actually could help you. Right. They could open doors for you. There are some predatory investors. I'm not, I mean, I'm, they're out there, you know, that yep. you show vulnerability, but I also, I never think it shows vulnerability to show numbers and reality. And I think that's a sign of strength. I think it's a, it's it makes you look much worse and more vulnerable. If you're not willing to put your numbers out there and be honest about, okay, here's where we're at. This is not good. Here is our plan going forward. And by the way, do you have any contacts that can help us execute this plan? Do you know anyone who might give us a discount if we worked with them on, on this kind of an arrangement? Do you have any expertise in this area? Do you have someone else who has expertise in this area that could have a 30-minute conversation with me? Like, do the inform and then do the ask. Both of yeah. those things together. And here's why, and, and here's why you're this is why you talk and why you talk about this topic so much in your an expert in this area, you would say, why, why is an attorney, why is an attorney talking so much about communicating with investors and, and all this stuff has, what does that have to do with legal? Right? Well, here's the thing. When, when things, when things fall apart or when things fall off the rails and go sideways, 
it's clear what the founders should have been, or even the investor, what they should have been doing to prevent the now the mess that you've got to go uh, sort out. Am I right? Isn't this where this? Take a perfect example of how these two things intersect. So mm-hmm. you might have a, a bridge note, you know, or a, some kind of convertible note or loan. And guess what? It probably has investor rights in it, like mm-hmm. pro rata right to invest or a right of first refusal for this. Or if you want to raise more money, you got to come to me. And if you're not keeping your eye on that or information rights that you're actually supposed to do reporting to these people on a quarterly basis, and you're supposed to do balance sheets and P&L, if you don't, those are in your legal documents and it could trigger default or an acceleration of, of a loan if you're taking your eye off of those obligations and you're not clear on those. So you yeah. you never even want an investor or a lender or a contract vendor partner to be looking, once they start looking at their contract to see how yeah. they can force you to do things, you're, you're in a bad spot. So this is preventative care, right. you know? <laughs> open communications. And, and yeah, stay. a little self-induced discomfort will uh, go a long way in that case. Um, exactly. I want to ask about this concept that you share with me that I've never heard before, and I think it's going to be in your book and you should probably uh, trademark it. The, the money man and the worker bee. Yes. So, What's that? What is that, Cheryl? I have different vignettes. One of the best advice I got was from Topher Morrison about doing talks, right? Because he's like, you know, you might be booked for a 45-minute talk and then somebody else went over. Now it's 20 minutes. How are you going to scale that down? So it's stories, bite-sized vignette stories so that you have your, your opening bookend, your closing bookend. And then within that, you might have six stories that you can pull for, from, and maybe you just do two if it's a short talk, and you have the yeah. other six. So you have this in your repertoire. So I've tried to do that with the partner trap, both for the book and for speaking engagements where I have these stories. So one of them that illustrates, I, these are all based on, I, I mean, we get a lot of work because of partner disputes. Yeah, that's what I want to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's sad. It's a sad situation that is like you do not want to derail your company because the founders can't get along. It's terrible. Um, but it happens frequently. And I really try to do it more as a mediator and work it out for them. Even when I'm hired to represent one of them, my first course of action is try to make it work. And then obviously, if you have to get more aggressive to represent your client, that's what you have to do. But my first approach is to try like counsel them into because yeah. it's so damaging for the business. If you go full full bore litigation, it's nobody's going to do well. It's just the way yeah. that it is. Isn't anyway, one, isn't, question, isn't, one, isn't a partner dispute one of the few things? I mean, one of the things that can actually dismantle a company completely. Sometimes, especially yeah. if if the agreements are written so that they yeah, have equal. Sure, want to think about this. You want to go out and raise capital, and then they find out that the, the two investors or the partners are suing each other. <laughs> You're done. That's not going to happen. Like that, no, no. it's not going to work. So no. yes, it, it can. But also, if they if they have control issues, if you if if you can bring you you can lock the gears of a company if the two partners, especially if they're near fifty fifty, don't agree yeah. on something. Now all of a sudden you can't make any decisions, right? No. And there's great solutions for it. And you know, I usually find that if you have a good prenup agreement, it actually kind of dissolves tension because mm-hmm. people don't have to sit there and wonder like, well, if I do this, is he going to do that? They can, they know they have a contractual agreement that says if we don't get along and we're 50, 50 and we can't make a decision, we have an advisory group of three people 
majority vote of them will break the deadlock. You know, yeah. so that you have mechanisms that you've put into place. To me, that's just going to help. But my, back yeah. to the money man and the worker bee. So that scenario yeah. is a situation where and this was kind of the the version of the story that's a takeoff of the truth, like like in the movie business, right? <laughs> Very <laughs> the truth. Um, but a woman who started a restaurant and she had an investor who was going to be a silent partner who put in $100,000, 50-50. So, you know, two years into it, she's working six, seven days a week. She is generating profit finally, but she's having to give 50% of it to this investor. He's already yeah. gotten his 100000 back. And now she's like, oh my God, am I just going to, for what, 10, next 10 years, I'm going to do all the work and he's going to continue to get 50% of the profits? Like, I don't want to do this. Like, I need to renegotiate this. This is terrible. So, you know, and of course, his perspective is, I made it so you could start this business. The only reason you could even open this business is because I gave you this seed fund of 100,000 and that's the deal that we struck was 50-50, but he wouldn't let her increase her salary. So one of the things that I always tell people is to look at your relationship in three buckets as far as your partner agreement. So the first bucket is equity. That's the percentage of ownership that you have in the business. And that's only matters if you sell, you liquidate, okay, I get, you sold for a million dollars, I get half a million, you get half a million, right? Or if you're making profit distributions. Otherwise, it doesn't matter what you own. That's equity. Right. Control, the control, people equate 50-50 to the control. But Separate. actually, the control doesn't have to be based on the no. equity ownership. The control right. can be based on, and that's why I always have LLCs start as manager-managed, not member-managed. So you have your board of managers separate from the members. You have a lot more flexibility on control. Yeah. So the next category is control. Who's going to make the decisions for this business? How are those going to be made? Are there different sectors that you guys are going to defer to each other on? Is it all going to be collaborative? Unanimous is kills. So, you know, we talk through that. And then the third one is compensation. And this is actually where a lot of the fights can happen. Compensation is not the same as equity because salary and the amount of money you're pulling out does not have to all be based on the equity ownership. It's really who's working in the business. So in that case of that money man and worker be, if a fairer arrangement would have been, okay, you're going to put in $100,000. After I get three times my money, I will then reduce my equity percentage to 20% because yeah. I've already gotten a 3x return. Right. Something along those lines where she's not demotivated and That's wants right. to close up the restaurant. So if you don't talk through these buckets, though, and how you can separate them, or if he had allowed her to take a salary, that would also solve the problem. If she was taking out a salary that was healthy and fair, and then they split the profits, yeah, that would also work. Keeping keeping things uh, fair and in uh, in progression, right, is really really important. Um, and, and what about the flip side of that? So that's an example of a company that uh, was seated and. and be, became successful, you know, on a regular trajectory. And now you want to right. make things fair and reasonable for the, for the worker bee, the founder worker yeah. bee, right? Um, what about the case where you start it and the company struggles longer than expected and mm -hmm. the investor, uh, Does that not, has that ever not happened? <laughs> I know, I know. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> And, Usually and, it's you know, longer right? than, I mean, in the rare, okay, we do have Instagram, right? Was right. Like within 18 months. Right. So, yeah. yeah. But, There's but like, families. you know, that situation where you want to also, uh, you know, keep 
keep everybody motivated, right? And you don't necessarily want that investor to be able to like ratchet down on the founder and 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 so forth, right? To um, do, do you see that where you have to recalibrate recalibrate yeah. the founder and the investor then? And, and that's where you hope that you have an investor who's uh, sophisticated or at least fair or knowledgeable enough to to understand that demotivating founders is not going to actually be a rosy picture at the end. Yeah. Um, and and actually, to the credit of a lot of investors that I've worked for or with, they sometimes when they go into like a new round, they absolutely want to right size like before you do this raise you know and go out to the next to the next vc group we've got to right size this because it's you're going to get crammed down too much and they want to motivate them now obviously whether your investors want to do that for you as a founder largely depends on oh have you been transparent communicative honest forthright I mean, you're planting seeds that are going to get reaped later. That's, you know? that's huge. I, I think that's my favorite thing right here, that if anybody wants to ever take a big lesson off of this, this interview, is that, that the benefit and the, the ROI on a founder um, over-communicating with its investor or even stakeholders, investor, uh, uh, stockholders, um, and I would even, you know, that goes to employees and partner, like everyone, right? A good, a good founder slash CEO is an over-communicator, and it always pays dividends. I see it all the time at the way with our founders. Like the, it always comes through when you're even in a jam. Even if they don't read it, even if they don't read it, yeah. They, if you send they that regular read. email, they just feel like okay, they they're giving yeah. me some love. They're giving me some attention. They, so you're organized right. enough to do these reports. You know, they yeah. want to know that you're you're organized and in control enough. And I know it's hard. I have to say is running a law firm and the hours that I have and the pressure that I have to get stuff done. I often need to remind myself that communicate because communicating with clients, any business you're in, in my case, it's not investors, it's clients. And if they don't hear from me, I say, Oh, I think I'll have that for you in like a week or three days or whatever. Those that three days comes. I'm not done with it yet. I have a choice. I can either be like, Oh shoot, I'm not done with it. Yet. I'll just get to, I hope I can get it done tomorrow. Or I can take two minutes and send them an email and say, Reset. I'm really sorry. I thought I would be done. I'm not quite done. I, I want to get a you know good night's sleep and look at it with fresh eyes in the morning. I hope that's okay. Sorry for the delay. Reset. Reset. You're, yeah. you're just at least acknowledging that you're not doing it in a timely manner and you're not making them wait. Do I do this perfectly all the time? Absolutely not. And it's probably the thing that bothers me the most if I don't feel like I'm in control of my schedule enough to communicate effectively with clients because I do feel it's that important. By the way, Chuck, uh, Chuck's got some more comments for us. <laughs> I wish we Chuck's could get his more... voice because you got to get the whole animation of Chuck. I know I can't, <laughs> no way could I do that. Uh, but by the way, he says the only place success comes before work is in the dictionary. I think that's, that's kind of a cool phrase. But then he says a good investor would not deny an entrepreneur making a market salary, even if that meant lower profits for the equity partners. I want the entrepreneurs I work slash invest with to be paid fairly so they don't go to bed at night worrying about paying their bills, but go to bed thinking about how to build the long-term value of the business for both of us. And obviously what that means implied in that is that salary needs to be keep them hungry enough. It can't be you know, uh, super comfortable. It's got to be hungry, but it can't be so hungry that they can't focus on the business, I think is really the message there, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 You know, and again, it goes back to, I think that investors are much more willing to, mm -hmm. to see you allocating a reasonable salary to yourself if you're performing. <laughs> yeah. 
not performing. You're not communicating. They don't think you're doing a good job. You've got, I think it's not necessarily that they're depriving you of a salary because they, they don't want to pay yeah. you a salary. It sometimes is an indicator that they don't think that you're doing a valuable job. Right. I think that's um, the big takeaway again. It's like, it's like placing deposits. Think of those as little deposits you're making that are going to be able to come back to you later. And we see it time and time again. It's, it's something you only yeah. learn. Most people only learn the hard way unfortunately. Um, so they hope they can watch something like this and, and, and pick up uh, and maybe save themselves a little bit of pain. Um, before we get to your pa- passion projects, because you've got a few of them, because that's how we're going we're gonna to wrap up here shortly, is a couple of passion projects that you have that are very interesting. Um, you, know, I, you know, I think the, basically, you know, this idea of anything else that, you know, you would add for founders or investors or partners let's get back to the partner thing we touched on the investor quite a bit but anything else with partners that you you look having like you said it's the biggest ugliest thing that you have to deal with right that Mm -hmm. advice that you would you would give uh partners in a business right now that could help them stay out of some of those those problems I, i think honestly i would number one piece of advice would be do you even need a partner because People need each other. There's no question that people, nobody has all of the tools and skills and everything that they need. But there's a big difference between collaboration and actually having full ownership with a partner, you know, where you're embedded equity wise and your names are both on the bank account and all of the things that come with that. And so I've just, I've had particularly, and I have to say it, it's more often with women but I think it comes from a place of not feeling confident enough that they need this. I call it the crutch, you know, and I, mm-hmm. you know, I have three things that when they think about when you want to ask yourself, do I need a partner? Is this really a crutch? Do I actually have all the things I need to climb this mountain on my own using contractors, using strategic partners, collaborating, paying, or do I actually need someone to own this company with me? That's the first question. Second one is, are you doing it because, oh, it'll be fun. This is my buddy. A lot of it is actually motivated like, oh, it's more funny, fun to go on a journey with someone. That's not a good enough reason to go into business with somebody. Like that should be your friend. Go have drinks with them. Have lunch, power lunches with them. But you don't necessarily have to own your business with them. Um, those are my big two. Honestly. No, I think you know? it's beautiful. I almost would almost boil that down to, if you've taken on a partner because the way it makes you feel, and this, by the mm-hmm. way, I, I, I think yeah. a lot of men, including myself, have have this you know part, and I know plenty of men too. Uh, wouldn't I wouldn't argue that it's more of a woman issue, but I would also say a lot of men. Bottom line, a lot of times people go into partnerships because of the way it makes them feel, right? Mm-hmm. I'm so excited. I love this person. They yeah. make me feel good that we've worked so good together. And validating your idea. I feel That's yes. Part of it too. You want somebody else to be like, yeah, this is. I love it. I want to do it with you. It's it's a validation of your idea, you know, but you can get that in other ways. And it's just unfortunate. It's, it's so hard um, to maintain long-term effective partnerships. And, and I actually think I have one client, there's nine partners and I, in my observation, and they're using the slicing pie model, which if you haven't read slicing pie, it's actually really interesting. It's a great Um, book. I almost think that having more is easier than having only one or two. Because it dilutes the control or impact of any one person, you know, um, or two people to kind of 
you start feeling that friction and tension. It's a little diluted over more people when you have that many people. It's got its own set of <laughs> challenges, I'm sure. But yeah, yeah, but it's but it's spread around. I think I think that whole thing around feel, you know, the way things make you feel. I think uh, it, it, you know, really a partnership should be kind of a a very a, a very again a very clinical ideally ideally and and you can wait till your third startup and figure this out or you can try to do it on your first but it should be a very it's just like dating before you marry marry you know like are you really going to go out on two first dates and then or in a totally different context you haven't had a romantic relationship oh we've been friends forever but no let's just go and get married so i think that if you think you want to be a partner with somebody then do some things together, do some projects, work together on aspects. Go camping, of go camping, camping. Go, go RV, go on an RV trip, go on a cruise. Oh my God. Go, and not glamping. Don't go glamping, go, go camping. Um, yes. So by the way, um, by the way, not just, I love to say it differently too. So do you need a partner? I think is a great one, but I would even, I like to say the other, the other one as well. Do you even, do you even, do you really need an investor? Right. Because that's another marriage that people don't realize that they're oh, getting oh, into, okay. right? And it's almost more dangerous because with a because often the answer is, do you need a partner? Often I would say the probability you need the answer is yes. You 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 very likely could to get to, to collaborate and to get work done and lots of good reasons to have a partner. But I feel like having an investor should be of, of last resort. And I'm going to tell you a lot of the wave founders that I work with, the venture back companies that are venture, that are investor back. If you, and I don't want to name names, but you ask them and they've raised millions and they're the darlings of the newspaper and they're the toast of the town. I know these people and you know, you know, these companies too. And you ask them privately, quietly, what they, what advice they would give a startup founder or what they wish they didn't, that they'd done differently. They say, I would, I never would have had to take on investor or investment, right? Because what they don't realize is that they don't realize till too late is you've just, you've just, um, you work so hard to be, to be your own boss as an entrepreneur and you, and you finally did it. You broke away and you, and you, and then, but then you've decided that you needed money and capital and investment. Yeah. And it sounded like, and, it, and it, it's so romantic, by the way, it's so romantic, right? To get an investment, to raise Somebody capital. Believes, it's validation. Somebody believes yeah. in my business, right? And it also takes so much risk off the table. You might get that salary that Chuck was talking about, or you might get yeah. that cushion, all that good stuff. But then you wake up one morning, it might be one month, two months, three months, six months later, and you realize that you've got a boss, or multiple yeah. or a few bosses and you and it's it's the worst day of your life when it hits yeah. you right and you brought I, it upon you and you brought it upon yourself like, yeah i think it's a very similar analysis and what i would say is you got to live your life with intention right so mm-hmm. if, if you are going to get a partner or you're going to get an investor be very intentional about it why are you doing this what are the alternatives ask yourself what what's the alternative okay if i don't take this investment money is it just that it would slow me down? And is that really a bad thing, right? Or is it going to be I'm going to go out of business because that competitor is is going so fast that I have to have this juice? So you just have to go through this analysis to weigh the pros and cons and to also always looking at the alternatives because that's that's the biggest thing is make yourself sit down and write the alternatives out. Can I get a bank loan? Will my Uncle John just give me a, a bridge note that has no equity tied to it? Whatever it is, explore those so that you find yourself going back to the right decision. And then also taking your time with those people. Like it's okay for you to do due diligence on the investor. Sometimes you're wanting them to want you so much and you're wanting that money, but what are they going to bring to the table for you? And I know like board of funders, 
you know, they really want to build build relationships with the, with the founders and, and give them knowledge as well. And you may not want to take that knowledge. So maybe that's not the right partner for you. Yeah. But if you do want someone who wants to be your advisor, they'd be a good fit. Yeah, absolutely. That's so powerful. So I put all this in the show notes, by the way, so people can read this and we're going to, you know, they'll be easy to digest for folks or what we, what we break down. Um, so before we wrap up, Cheryl, I want to go into, we took most of the questions as we went. I want to go into a couple passion projects for you. So whichever ones you want to talk about, you get to talk about. I know yeah. that women's issues and women's are, are a, a, a really big priority for you. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, which, oh, by the way, oh, I have one question here. You know what? I almost, almost forgot. Mr. Cal Tiger sent in a question in advance. Maybe you can make quick work of this, right? Yeah. Um, he said, it's a bit technical, but maybe therefore it can be, you can make quick work of it. I noticed on your website, he says, I noticed on your website where you have a section on restrictive covenant agreements, which yeah. includes NDA. Should an NDA include a non-circumvention? And is that the same as non-solicitation? You're like, oh my God, Alan, really right now? Regards, uh, Cal Tiger. Um, Should I have that wine. <laughs> he says, I asked because I lost a $400,000 deal with, with the big company due to a faulty NDA that was presented by my business partner's attorney. So anyway, you oh, want to just take a quick- came in. Yeah, so, this, so here what I would, uh, just in a, in a nutshell. So all of these things fall under restricted covenants. So confidentiality, I'm not, it's non-disclosure. That's effectively what it is. I will not disclose this bucket of information. Mm -hmm. Trade secrets fall within that. Then you've got non-solicitation, which is I will not solicit your employees, your customers, what have you. People I've learned about in this confidential setting. You've got non-compete. The non-circumvention is particularly important if, if the person that you've either hired or is working with you in some way is going to find out about an opportunity only because you're bringing it into the equation. You're looking at maybe whether they can be your developer partner so that you can go approach this company and package it. And, and now they know about something they didn't know about before that you had the entree to. And yet they could go around you and circumvent. So if they're getting, it's a little harder to say, well, this was confidential information and therefore they violated the non-compete. It's easier if you do have, you will not circumvent any opportunities, business opportunities. So I think it can't hurt you yeah. to put that extra in. And it is different than non-solicitation in a way because it's more yeah. focused on specific deals and not circumventing specific opportunities. And non-solicitation usually deals with not soliciting employees or already existing customers. Thank you. And, and you know what? We're just going to put a pin right on that. And by the way, uh, Sarah Connolly says, uh, Cheryl, you need to write the book. So that's what. Thank you. I know. <laughs> Everybody's, the, you feel the pressure, the pressure's building. I want to do it. I don't Cheryl, know. Once I you're public, you, therapy to figure out what the problem Cheryl, is. Cheryl, you know what? You saw what I did. I promised the internet I was going to write the book by, in six months. Well, I've done that. And I'm, I, I've lived with the shame that I've many times said it'll be done by December. I don't know. I don't know. I've not seen that in writing anywhere. I think it's very different. Okay. Yeah, I tried so to bury it enough. Off, yeah, bury that enough. Let's all right. Let's wrap this up with your uh, passion projects. Back to women's issues. What would you like to say? And 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 I've got a little something that um that I'm that uh, I'm gonna throw up here pretty quick. I don't know if you want to start here, but I'm throwing this up. So whatever you want to talk about. Oh, my husband has wine for me. <laughs> nice. Perfect, babe. Right when I'm talking about my passion projects, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes. Okay. So women's issues. I, I think all issues are important, but obviously being a female, I do have people come to me that say, can, you know, they want to bring me in as a mentor or speaker or whatever. Um, and I am more than happy to do that. I have a 15 year old daughter. And, and so, oh, I lost my screen. Hello? Oh, yeah. You still see it? We still oh, see you. No, I got it. I don't okay, know why I went there. Yeah. Anyway, so these are actually two separate logos. I have more logos than anyone should have for various passion projects <laughs> and probably 42 different domain names, just in case I might want to do purposeful parties or something. <laughs> so, so Girl Talk Shop is really just, I've been doing like these happy hours where it's, you know, there's a lot of women who love to get together and talk about like fiction books or they'll cook together, or they have a, they want to go to the beach together. I like to talk about business. That's my thing, right? So that's kind of the talk shop. So it's all, whenever I meet women who are similarly jazzed about all things business, starting businesses, growing companies, reading business books, listening to podcasts like yours, I know that type. And so I'm like, I want to invite you to my girl talk shop. And so it's really an informal happy hours. And I'd like to turn it into something more than that. But right now I'm just building a database of, of women who like to talk shop, talk business. That's their thing. Okay. So that's so, that one. Mm -hmm. And then what about this uh, extra spicy one down, this extra spicy yeah. logo down here? Okay. So one of the things I do is I started a, um, I work with a nonprofit called uh, GEMS, which is Girls Empowered Mentally for Success. And these are girls, um, middle school and high school who are in Hillsborough County that this incredible woman, Crystal Bales, started this nonprofit and they have a for-profit component that it feels it's like a social enterprise um, called Transitions Candles. And so they make these candles and empower these girls. But one of the things that I discovered working with these uh, girls who are really in impoverished, really tough areas of Hillsborough County, and a lot of people don't realize the level of trafficking that goes on in our, in our county, um, and, and a lot of the risk that these girls are in. And, and one of the things that I learned about was what they call period, period poverty. And that is essentially they don't have enough money to buy basic feminine hygiene products so that they can go to school, play sports, do things comfortably. Right. And I'm like, that's just horrible. It's a basic need and it's, it's holding these girls back. So I started Googling that and there's a lot out there about period poverty. So I thought, well, I'd like to start a panty line where, you know, you buy a panty and you give products, uh, feminine products to young women so that they can do what they need to do um, and live their life and not have this, this basic need go unmet. So how so, many male, how many male podcast hosts could possibly just take on this topic and be right there. And that's, I'm totally comfortable with this. I've got six sisters, no brothers and a only daughter. Yeah. So it's, like, yeah. it's, it's like totally comfortable. I think it's fantastic. And I just want to make sure that we got that. I know this is actually not quite fully launched or semi, but yeah, I just thought it was, it's, you know, I, and I, one of my great frustrations of my life is that I have all these things that all these ideas and things I would love to execute on. And I'm, I'm really, you know, um, struggled for I, I hate the phrase because I know like oh everybody has time look at Richard Branson you know you shouldn't you should, time time shouldn't hold you back but I don't know about don't I, believe I it. struggle with my 24 hours I only time, have 24 time is real isn't it time is real I by the way I Lisa struggle is real they try to tell us that it's you should you're not held back by time but I'm like mm, it's real 
I think I am held back. It, time. Yeah, it's by the way. Lisa said she loves the talk shop idea. She she yes, wants to sign you up. Can, you can but, email anybody, anyone who's that's what the, your thing is to talk business. You love it. You love to get together with other like-minded women. You can email me. You know what's cool about Lisa? She uh, I know Lisa. She uh, she's worked for two of the the most prominent CEOs in our area. At least one or two of them are Fortune 500. She's gone back to back to back with uh as a as a executive um executive assistant for some of the oh. some top top ceos in in the country um and she's now launching her own her own executive uh, uh virtual executive assistant uh company right now as we speak right. and i love that i love that she's on right now um okay and then uh great talk guys i think we're we're close to wrapping up here um cheryl i could talk to you all day of course you know that <laughs> <laughs> and I get back on the golf course and we would yeah, have you know what and you've got your wine finally um yeah it's good and uh um so and thank you for um thank you for just everything and and supporting me and my new book and and Absolutely. just coming onto the podcast I enjoyed, I enjoyed reading it enjoyed learning more about your background and all the things that you've been doing i appreciate that very much and uh and also the work you do with Florida funders, I think is pretty special. They're lucky to have yeah. you, right? I love it. It's fun. It's a, it's very rewarding and interesting. Steve McDonald just agreed just this week to get to do one of my next podcasts. So I'm really excited about that. Great. Yeah. Right? He's an interesting guy for sure. Yeah. Um, folks are saying thank you. Um, all right. So let me see. Okay. So, oh yeah, we already said write the book. Okay, great. Cheryl, are we good? You got anything else you want to pass good. on? Thanks for having me, Alan. I enjoyed it. Okay. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Enjoy the rest of your evening, and I'll see you soon. Okay. Take care.